I read uh, recently, and I, I was a little, maybe a little disturbed, like a little big brothery, but Amazon uh, with ebooks actually tracks people's highlights, what they underline. Uh, so I was a little like, oh boy, I, don't, I didn't know they were tracking my highlights. But it was interesting to see they had actually tracked the most highlighted verse in the Bible. Uh, and I was curious about that. I thought maybe, you know, for God so loved the world, or the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not, something like that. And it was different. It was actually from the book of Philippians chapter 4. Here is America's most highlighted verse, All right? Pretty good. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Powerful. I think it also points to the reality that a lot of us probably feel kind of stressed and maybe more this time of year than other times of year. There is a lot of anxiety, and that's probably one of the reasons we're highlighting that verse. Um, Be anxious about nothing, but present your prayers and your petitions to God. Well, this morning, we're going to dive into a story from the book of Daniel about a very stressful, anxiety-riddled situation that faced three individuals. It's a familiar story. I'm sure you have heard it told before. But kind of prefacing, Babylon was a scary place for these guys. Strange land where there were foreign customs, where their uh, priorities, where their perspective, where their faith story was not honored, was not held in high esteem by those around them. And when And when you're in a place like that, it's hard enough, but every once in a while, the spotlight mm, zooms in on you, and those around you are going to watch you make a very public choice. That was the situation for Shedrach, Meshach, and Abednego, a.k.a. Azariah, Hananiah, and Mishael. They were outsiders. They were exiles from Judea. And now they were serving in prominent positions in the Babylonian government. And then this in chapter 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue, 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide, set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then he sent messages to the high officers, officials, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all provincial officials to come to the dedication of the statue he had set up. And so the officials came. They stood before the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald shouted, People of all races and nations and languages, listen to the king's command When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and other musical instruments, bow to the ground to worship King Nebuchadnezzar's gold statue. Anyone who refuses to obey will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. So, at the sound of the musical instruments, all the people, whatever their race or nation or language, bowed to the ground 
and worship the gold statue that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. But some of the astrologers went to the king and informed on the Jews. They said to the king, to King Nebuchadnezzar, Long live the king! You issued a decree requiring all the people to bow down and worship the gold statue when they hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and other musical instruments. And that decree also states that those who refuse to obey must be thrown into the blazing furnace. But there are some Jews, Shedrach, Meshach, and Abednego, whom you have put in charge of the province of Babylon. They pay no attention to you. Your majesty... They refuse to serve your gods, and they do not worship the gold statue that you have set up. They serve another god. They refuse to worship your gods. They are servants of Yahweh. Their disobedience to the royal decree has been observed and has been reported to the proper authorities. Now, I doubt that you have ever been ordered to literally bow down before a golden idol, but we live in a time and place, and all people do, where there are idols, where there are false gods who are worshipped, and there are pressures to be moved under the influence of these false gods. A false god, an idol, is anything or anyone who rivals the one true God for the affections of your heart. Um, anything that, that claims that place that God alone should have as the authority in your life. Um, and we are, by the way, our culture, I mean, we could, do, we could go all day talking about the false idols of America in 2018, rolling into 2019. I mean, we would probably want to talk about, about money. How about starting with that? How about wealth? That is how our culture scoreboards your worth, how successful you are, how much do you make? How much are you worth? Our society also elevates personal happiness, the pursuit of happiness as a God, something to be pursued, something that, that should regulate your decisions in your life. What makes you happy? Find that, do that, embrace that. Like sex in marriage, outside of marriage, whatever makes you happy. Straight sex, gay sex, whatever makes you happy, right? I mean, do whatever makes you happy. Don't let anyone tell you not to do that. If it makes you happy and it doesn't hurt anybody else. It's interesting, in the New Testament, John was talking to these followers of Jesus and he reminded them of, of who they were, that their identity was now in Christ and the forces that would oppose them, the idols around them in their culture. He said this. He said, we are in him who is true, the Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And I think that word is as true today as it was then. 
Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Now, most idols seem reasonable enough. They are usually tied into things that make us feel more secure, that make us feel more happy, that address either a fundamental, a fundamental want or a need, and you are going, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, yeah, but a 90-foot-tall golden statue, how is that reasonable? Why would anyone want to bow down to that? Well, it made perfect sense. It was reasonable and useful in the Babylonian Empire. And we've got it right there in the text, right? You've got a very diverse mosaic of peoples that now compose this empire, different ethnicities and cultures and languages and cultures. Very useful to have something to rally around, something that everybody can agree on, something that can unite all of these people. Let's build a statue and let's bring together all of the leaders of the country. And we can all agree, we're going to be united around this statue. And, and most likely that statue was a statue of the chief Babylonian god, Marduk. So let's build this giant statue of Marduk, who, by the way, has a surprisingly well-defined calf muscle. I mean, guy definitely works out. Um, so you've got a royal decree. Everyone must bow to this statue, and these three refuse. What seems to be a very reasonable request at the dedication of this gorgeous work of art. Now, the penalty for refusing, we are told, is death. Babylon's version of the electric chair is the fiery furnace. And the guilty would be marched up the steps and marched into this pit of fire. The king was enraged to hear that on the very day of the dedication of his beautiful and awesome statue, these three are ruining the party. They refuse to go along with this. And so they are hauled before Nebuchadnezzar. And we are told in verse 15 that they are offered a second chance. Guys, all you've got to do is take a bow before the statue. And then everybody goes home. Everything is okay. It's not that big of an ask. Just bow to the statue. If not, you're going into the furnace. Verses 16 to 18, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God whom we serve is able to save us. He will rescue us from your power, your majesty. But even if he doesn't, and kind of tag that in your mind, but even if he doesn't, we want to make it clear to you, your majesty, that we will never serve your gods or worship the gold statue that you have set up. Now, put some context around this. They have been given a very comfortable life in Babylon. In fact, at the end of chapter 2, we were told that they were promoted to positions of authority. They were administrators of the royal province of Babylon. They're living the good life. Luxury, great food, 
great conditions to, to, to raise your family and to, to dream of, of a bright future for your children and your grandkids. I mean, they really kind of had it made in Babylon. And now they, st- they stand before their boss, their employer, the king. Gentlemen, Nebuchadnezzar asks them, don't overthink this. I have given you a great life. It is not that hard. Bow down before the statue. Otherwise, I'm going to have to fulfill the command that I gave to throw you into the furnace. Come on, guys. He's almost pleading with them. And they said, verse 18, no. You're asking the one thing we cannot do. We can't bow to a false god. Our God is able to save us if you throw us into the furnace, but even if he doesn't. And the physical countenance, we are told in the text, the, 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 uh, the image of the king, the face of the king changed, was transformed. Almost a, a demonic presence seemed to take over. And he shouted for the oven to be turned up to maximum, you know, turn it up to 11. We are going to roast these guys alive. Now these three, they show us what real faith looks like. Check this out. Real faith trusts It does not demand specific outcomes. It does not tell God how to do His job. They say the God whom we serve is able to save us, but even if He doesn't, we will never serve your gods. Even if He doesn't. Faced with the horrific prospect of being burned alive, they will not tell God how to do His job. Faith is not simply a mental power. It is not simply a a spiritual force that you learn how to manipulate, that you learn how to use in order to get what you want. When we first moved to Rio, our family has been about 20 years now. One of the first friendships that I developed was with a guy named Souza. Souza was a friendly guy. He owned a hair salon right down the street from where we lived. So I'd go in there and get my hair cut, and we would have these great conversations and joke around. And every time I'd show up, he'd, he'd announce my name you know, loudly to anyone there at the salon. There's Gordon, my American friend. And he was wearing his white uniform with his, with his awesome logo on there and had his signature black hair with blonde highlights larger-than-life personality, this guy. And we would talk. And, and one time I was over at his house. He and Maria lived uh, there, his wife. And, and I was at their house. And, and he, was, he was very interested in faith. In fact, he told me, he said, I want you to help me have more faith. And I'm like, that is exactly why God sent us from the United States down to Brazil to help people grow in their faith. I was excited. This was perfect. We had good chemistry. We liked each other. But as we opened the Bible and I began to share with him stories about Jesus, it turned out he wasn't so much interested in Jesus, per se, 
certainly not interested in the lordship of Jesus. What he was interested in was his conception of faith. He had dreams. He had goals for his life. All of us do. His dreams, he wanted to expand his business, hire more hairstylists, move into a high-end mall there in Rio. And after making all of his money, he and Maria, they would buy a beach house down the coast and they would retire. By the way, nothing wrong with any of his dreams. Sounds good to me. But he saw faith as this tool to get his dreams accomplished. If he could, and this was kind of his idea, if he could believe strong enough in his vision, if he could cast aside all negativity and doubt, he believed that all of his goals and hopes would come true. He wasn't interested in hearing about a Lord who might have an agenda different from his own agenda. Wasn't interested in that at all. He wasn't interested in a God who might have different plans, even if he doesn't. That wasn't the God he was looking for. Shedrach, Meshach, and Abednego, however, they, they had this true faith. They didn't know how their story was going to end. They didn't know that this was going to turn out the way it was, they left the outcomes up to God. They trusted his judgment. Trusting God. Now that's faith. Trusting God. That doesn't mean that you pray generic and bland prayers No, they were bold. They were specific. Our God is able. We believe that our God is going to rescue us, but even if he doesn't, they they asked very specifically, but here's the thing. When you have faith, you ask for whatever you think is best, but you trust God to do what is truly best. That's on your outline. You can write that down. I ask the Lord for whatever I think best, but I trust him to do whatever truly is best, all right? Sosa had a prayer life, but what he put before God was so typical of what a lot of people bring before the Lord. It was more success, less trials, more happiness, less pain. That was really what his prayer life was all about. And when you think about it, many people... Come before the throne of God and ask and ask and ask. And they are asking for God to give them the life where God is not needed. God, I want a life where I get the promotion and I get the money and nobody gets sick and no problems happen and tragedy stays far away and I never even get close to the furnace. That's the life I want. The life where you don't need to show up. And so I ask myself that, and I put that just on the outline as a kind of reflection this week. Is that me? You know? Does my prayer life reveal that I want a life where God is not needed? The three faithful friends 
standing before Nebuchadnezzar, they wanted the life where God was in charge. They wanted the life where his will was done, where he would be glorified. And let's be honest here. Whether God rescued them from the fire or not, he was going to be glorified. I mean, that crowd was going to be in awe even if they weren't saved. But if by faith they had walked into that fire and been burned alive, people would have been amazed by their faith. Would have been curious about their God. All they had to do, though, to escape a cruel and horrific end was to, was to bow down before the statue. They wouldn't. All they had to do to get their comfortable lives back was bow down before the statue. They wouldn't. And they did not know what would happen next. But they knew they would not dishonor their God. They felt the heat from the furnace. We're told in the text that the guards who were escorting them into this fiery furnace, those guards actually died from exposure to the heat before they even got them to the furnace. And suddenly these three friends found themselves engulfed by the flames in the middle of this raging inferno, and they felt fine. 73 degrees and pleasant there. They're, they're watching the flames licking against them and their clothes are not burning. Their hair is not singeing. They don't feel uncomfortable at all. We're told they were walking around in the flames. When suddenly they found they were not alone. There was a divine presence among them in the flames. They weren't imagining things. In fact, the pagan king himself saw this fourth person. He said, Nebuchadnezzar said, Weren't there three men that we placed into the furnace? Why do I see four? Many scholars believe... And I believe the fourth was Jesus. Jesus. And while the text does not explicitly say that, it hints at it. Nebuchadnezzar says this, Daniel 3, 25, I see four men loose walking in the midst of the fire and they have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Here's the problem with committing yourself to the idols of comfort and success. The problem with devoting yourself to staying out of the furnace is this. It is very possible that the place Christ wants to meet you is in the furnace. When the Lord does not rescue you from the fire... He rescues you in the fire. Your devotion and faith may lead you to some dangerous places. Would you agree? After reading the New Testament, would you agree that disciples of Jesus tend to find themselves at times in some dangerous places? 
Genuine faith will take you on this adventure with the Lord. And that adventure, that place where you are surrounded by the flames, that may be the place appointed for you to experience His His presence, His power, and His blessing. I love this word. As God's people were struggling and surrounded and in all sorts of trouble, God spoke to them in Isaiah 43 and said this. He said, when you walk through the fire, not if, but when, because in life we're going to walk through some fires. He tells his people, when you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. I'm your Savior. And if my primary concern is having a pleasant life, I run the very real danger on missing out on the purpose of my life. If my prayer is, God, remove all of my setbacks and struggles, then I may remove myself from the place He wants to meet me. A friend of mine came to me a while back and she was talking to me about her job situation. And she was talking to me specifically about her boss and kind of the culture of the office. And she said, I am the only believer at work. She said, it is not easy to follow Jesus in this place. They make fun of my faith. They're constantly posting things on our chat there uh, uh, that are... uh, you know, atheistic things and things that make fun of people who have faith. She said, she said, Gordon, would you pray for me that God would give me a new job? I want to I work in a Christian space, you know? I want people who share my values. I want to work with those people. And I said, well, before I pray for that, let me ask you something. I said... What if you are where you are because God wants you there? What if he's trying to teach you something or show you something or grow you in some way and that's the place he's appointed to do that? Or what if God wants you to be there? I don't think I use the word Babylon, but you know, what if God wants you to be in this kind of Babylon, in this place where no one shares your values so that you can represent Him? So that you might be some sort of influence pointing to God. Maybe we shouldn't be in such a hurry to get out of the furnace. Anyway, Shedrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they met the Lord in the furnace. And I want you to think about this. One last thing before we move on from that. Just, just this was the highlight of their lives. I imagine them year late, years later, and they may have been playing cards, or they may have just been sitting around swapping stories, but the hair has turned gray, some of the teeth are starting to fall out, and this is the moment they go back to. Do you remember the time when everybody who was somebody in Babylon 
was looking at us. And we were being marched into the furnace. And no harm came to us. And we met God there in the furnace. That was the highlight moment. That was the greatest worship experience, encounter with God they ever had. And you remember when we walked out of the furnace and Nebuchadnezzar and all of those high-ranking officials praised our God because of us. And that's what happened. They came out, the king... All of the people were just trembling in awe, couldn't believe what they had seen. And this story, if you pay attention, there's a complete 180 in the story. The story begins with the king issuing an ultimatum. Anyone who doesn't worship Marduk will be killed. At the end of the story, Nebuchadnezzar says, anyone who disrespects their God will be killed. What a 180 because of their faith. And as we finish, there's something in the story I want you to see. I think it is so interesting because it represents something about us, about every person. There is a deep-seated longing. There is a hunger that all of us have to worship one who is greater than us. King Nebuchadnezzar in the story is worshiping God at the end of the story And I think everybody has a deep-seated longing to, to reject the posers and the pretenders, the false gods of individualism and money and sex and fame and followers and whatever, and bow before the great I am. There is a desire in each person to worship something or someone bigger than themselves. From the text in verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise to the God of Shedrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, we're going to wrap up here. It's the end of the story. And I would love to be able to tell you, And thus began a revival in the land of Babylon that the people of Babylon would never turn back from. But that's not the way the story works out as you read in the following chapters. And we know in our lives that's not the way it works out. You don't choose one day to follow Jesus. And from that point forward, for the rest of your life, you are never again tempted. You are never again influenced by the idols around you. That's just not the way it works. What you do, like Shedrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is you choose for today. Today I'm a servant of God. Today, I'm not going to bow before the idols of this age. Today, I'm going to live in the gospel. Today, I'm going to live in Christ. 
and turn away from the idols around me. Today I will not bend my knee before the gods of this age that, sit, that seek to tempt and influence and distort my identity in Jesus. Today, once again, I choose Jesus. That's how you keep the revival going. And maybe for you, it's choosing for the first time today to become a follower of Jesus. To say, Jesus, I accept you as my Lord and my Savior. And I want to be baptized in your name and launch this new life where each day I turn into you and I turn into the gospel. Or maybe you're facing some sort of fiery furnace in your life right now and you just need prayers. God, help me. God, deliver me. But even if you don't, God, let me honor you. Let me be faithful to you. And you just need to pray about that situation in your family, in your office, some sort of illness, some sort of struggle. And we would encourage you, as we always do here, and we finish out our worship times together, to gather with somebody and pray about that. However you need to respond to the Lord, do that as we stand together and worship.